existential risks is a big thing. We're talking about life and death, we're talking about the planet, we're talking about the environment. So this is not a single problem with a single solution. Welcome to Alliance, a podcast about the humanities and existential risk. I'm Alice Evert. I'm Henry Tan. And we'll be your hosts. Today we're talking to Dr. Gemma Deer about how literature can help us understand and deal with climate change. This podcast is brought to you by the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities and the Balliol Interdisciplinary Institute. That was a recording of protesters in France rallying against climate change. Global warming of 1.5 to 2 degrees is very unlikely to cause human extinction, but extreme levels of warming could. If we get to a point of no return with climate change, that is, if we reach a tipping point or a point where warming becomes self-reinforcing, even if we do limit and stop emissions, then climate change could pose an existential risk. That is, it could lead to the collapse of human civilization, or even in extreme cases, human extinction. Professor Will Steffen from the Australian National University suggests that we think of tipping points like a row of dominoes. Once you push one over, we're headed for the next. Tipping points may include the collapse of ice sheets, the release of methane trapped in permafrost, the loss of the Amazon rainforest, and possibly even reduction in cloud coverage. In this episode, we talk to Gemma Deer, an environmental fellow at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. Her work is at the intersection of literature and the environmental humanities. We want to know how literature can help us think about climate change, how climate change compares to something like nuclear warfare as an existential risk, and how the humanities can help us deal with and hopefully avoid climate change before it gets to a point where it threatens human civilization. Henry went to speak to Gemma at the University of Sussex, where she completed her PhD before leaving for Harvard. How do you think the humanities can contribute to the study of existential risks? Certainly, I'm not operating under the delusion that the humanities can save us, whatever that means. But what I think the humanities can and must contribute has to do with mobilising this kind of double sense of the word humanity. So it's not just about the collective noun of human beings, but it's also about humanity in the sense of compassion and thinking about the responsibility that we have as human beings on a planet in crisis. How do you think English literature and the study of literature can contribute to thinking about the problem of climate change. First and foremost, for me, literary studies is a reading practice. So it is taking a text and using a certain set of skills to not only understand it, not only make sense of it, but also often to kind of find meanings and ideas to find ways of thinking that perhaps the author even didn't necessarily think of or intend. So literary studies is a reading practice. It's an expertise and interpretation. What literary studies can do and what Gemma's research is doing is taking these skills and applying it to concepts like climate change and the Anthropocene. When we start to think about the Anthropocene, which is just briefly what 
geologists are kind of designating as this new epoch. So the idea that human beings' effects on the planet are now going to be legible in the geological record that word legible is very literal here. The Anthropocene is a matter of marks or traces that human beings are leaving in the planet. So whether that's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, whether that's pollutants, plastics, in a very real sense, these marks and traces are legible and will be legible in the future. So the understanding of the Anthropocene, the understanding of these environmental crises also requires a reading practice. And again, just like literary studies, it's not only saying, okay, these marks mean that we've burnt however many million tons of fossil fuels, but they also mean a bit more than that. They tell us about the ways that we have, but also the ways that we think we can interact with the planet, the kind of ideological positions that have allowed us to build a world that that is built on extraction, that is built on endless growth, essentially. I mean, that is what capitalism boils down to. It needs constant growth. And, you know, obviously, infinite growth on a finite planet just doesn't work in the end. And I think that kind of reading of the marks of saying, okay, so it's not just the planet getting warmer, it's also telling us something about ourselves. And that is a reading practice, is the way in which these environmental challenges can be thought of as analogous to literary studies. How would you say that literature can affect the ways in which we perceive climate change and which we think about the scale of transformation? It comes down to narrative and storytelling. Literature is telling stories. And actually, there's a lot of psychological research that shows that as a species, we're not very good at engaging with science, with raw data, and particularly with climate change. It doesn't do any of the things that spark our emotions. We respond well to threats that are near at hand, that are visible, that are transient, i.e. that can hold our attention because it's just happening. And climate change is none of these things. And what actually we're really good at engaging with on an emotional level is stories and storytelling. We like there to be a hero and a villain so that we can have this kind of emotional engagement and act accordingly. Climate change and the data about it doesn't have that. So I really think we need to make it about telling stories. We need to make it touch people on a personal level in order to get people to engage and really change the way that they act. It doesn't even need to be stories that are necessarily about climate change. None of the texts that I actually look at are about climate change or the environment on the surface level, but that through reading these stories, they can help us to change the way that we think about these problems. I think that's where literature and literary studies can come in. Gemma's PhD was on literature and climate change. It was about how we can rethink our understanding of climate change and the planet using what she calls radical animism. The idea that the planet, for example, can take on a life of its own. Animism originally was about distinguishing between living and non-living matter. But more famously than that, the term was used by the Victorian anthropologist E.B. Tyler to talk about what he called 
so-called primitive or savage religions, and I put those words in inverted commas. So the idea that people believed in spirits that were in trees and plants and rivers and non-living things. Tyler called this animistic religion. So that's the kind of most common meaning in English, and it's, it's quite a derogatory term, or at least it was back then. He wasn't saying that they were right. He, he thought that they were, well, wrong, <laughs> simply. For me, using that term was about kind of reclaiming it and thinking about it in a different way. So thinking about a sense that there is life that is not reducible to organic life. So not just trees and horses and humans and things that respire, but that other things are alive. So language seems to have a life of its own. In connection with climate change, Gemma applies this idea to the planet as well. In the light of climate change, the planet as a whole seems to have a kind of life of its own or an agency in that it is responding to us. It's not just this passive background that we can do what we want to, but that it interacts with us in multifarious ways. And it's not that climate change was the first time that this happened. It's always been that way. It's just that it's kind of now revealing itself to us in a way that we can no longer ignore because it's actually disrupting civilization. It's disrupting what we've built and what we rely upon. Are there particular texts which you think are important to reread in the light of the current environmental crisis? I don't think that there are particular texts, no, that will give us the answers if there is such a thing. The PhD thesis ranged rather broadly from Kafka's The Metamorphosis, a couple of Virginia Woolf novels, two pieces of contemporary writing, and I looked at Freud and Hamlet. So with that kind of rather mixed bag that probably seems not to go very well together. You know, I'm not trying to say through my thesis that, oh, these are the key texts, and if we just read these, that will give us the answer. Rather, I'm interested in the way that when we read certain texts in the new context of environmental crisis, that they can seem to anticipate that context even though they were written many years ago in some cases, they can seem to have something to say to us about them. And that, for me, has very much to do with the kind of the life or what I call the animism of literature, that literary texts can take on a life of their own. Many of these texts have been interpreted in various different ways throughout the years. So Alice in Wonderland, for instance, you've, you've got psychoanalytic interpretations, you've got Marxist interpretations, you've got feminist interpretations. And I'm not saying that none of those are relevant or true, but I found looking at the text in the contexts that I was thinking about it started to tell me things about the way that we distinguish or we think we can distinguish human beings and other animals. So you have all this stuff going on in the text where animals are doing things that we usually think are the reserve of human beings. So they are talking, they are wearing clothes, they are having tea parties and they are eating each other. So there's, there's lots and lots to do with eating and drinking in the texts. And 
when I start to think about this in an environmental sense, in light of the ideas of evolution, when we think about the fact that, you know, we are, of course, related to all other forms of life, you know, that distinction between human beings and heart and other animals becomes more and more difficult to pin down. And reading the Alice books in that context starts to bring these ideas out. So just to kind of round up and return to your question, no, I don't think that there's any particular text, but I do think that there are certain texts which can tell us something. So it's more about a way of reading than a particular text. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, of course, that's not to say that all texts are going to do that. But, you know, you can't limit yourself. You just have to read. In the opening of her thesis, Gemma makes a powerful analogy between Kafka's metamorphosis and our interaction with the planet. I look at the opening of the metamorphosis, which is obviously a very famous text, in which Georg Samtser wakes up as a monstrous vermin. And this is literalised in the text. He wakes up and he has this big brown body and waggling legs and, and can't seem to talk in a human voice anymore. I was struck by a phrase that you had that you can draw an analogy between transformation that's dealt with in the book and the way that banal everyday activities can have monstrous effects on the planet and on ecology. My thinking there is that as we wake up to the idea of climate change and the environmental devastation for which we're responsible, we are realising that we are the vermin or the pests of the world. We are the ones who are destroying things. And in terms of the kind of other transformations that you've just mentioned, that has very much to do with scale effects. The idea that individual actions, what we choose to eat, the way we choose to travel, how many plane journeys we take every year, all of these individual actions are minor, but there is this new planetary scale that we are now required to think at, even though that is an impossible task. Our brains have not evolved to deal with the planetary scale. We have evolved to, you know, to deal with a very close, small group of people to events that are happening within our site. This is one of the reasons why climate change is so difficult to think about, because we can't actually directly perceive it. We can perceive weather events, but that's not climate change either. That's something different. That is just a weather event. It's this transformation of our individual daily actions from something benign and harmless into something that's actually enormous and destructive. But it's also this transformation of our sense perceptions, which you know we've always kind of believed to be a measure of reality. Now they're kind of being revealed to be incommensurable with what we actually need to be thinking about and dealing with. And would you say that human identities are tied to the planets and the environment? And, and does this show itself through literature as well, through stories and, and narratives? I think historically human beings have seen themselves as having this identity that is separate from the planet, separate from other animals. That's how human beings have distinguished themselves. We talk, we write, we build things, we do things differently from other animals. We are masters of of the planet i think was kind of very much the idea which shaped human identity and and the way that we've built civilization but really i think the closer we look the more we have to admit that that's just not the case
Gemma makes the point that climate change is making us rethink the way we see ourselves as a species. I think what the Anthropocene and climate change, what the kind of deep or very long timescales that we're now having to think about do, is show us how that is pure illusion, that we are not separate from the planet in lots and lots of ways. So on a very kind of material sense, i.e. the atoms that make up my body and your body, we are connected to the rock that we've essentially got up and started walking around on. It sounds almost a little bit, for want of a better word, a bit of a hippie type thing that we are kind of materially one with the planet, but actually on a very literal sense we are. And then in terms of our connection with other life, there is no bigger difference between species than between you and your parents. So this kind of notion that we are separate from other forms of life is just an illusion of the picture that we have left now. But of course, over deep time, the the changes, the mutations were so minute as to be imperceptible. It's really about about the impossibility of these clear-cut distinctions. And to come back to the question, the notion of identity relies on on the, the notion of being able to make these distinctions. The main challenges from the perspective of literature and the humanities that seem to be emerging in thinking about climate change as an existential risk seem to be two different speeds of change or two different scales, thinking about very rapid change in the short term in our own lifetimes, things that are happening to accelerate changes in in temperatures or to make extreme weather events much more frequent, and then much longer scale, deep history, long-term environmental changes, and and actually very long-term things about human nature and our, our responses to things, which don't adapt at the same rate. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's absolutely about thinking and about both of these scales at once and the difficulty of that. It's not something that our brains really want to do. You know, we can we can talk about millions and billions of years, but they don't really mean anything to us. This is exactly where literature and narrative can come in and be helpful. We always need to come in with some kind of analogy or metaphor, someone stretching their arms out being the whole of geological history and then human history being one shaving off of a fingernail. And, you know, we kind of we need those things to try and get our head around it. But it's hard. It's not it's not what our brains really kind of have evolved to do. But one of the biggest challenges with climate change is recognising that it's actually happening and that we're running out of time to do something about it. One of the biggest challenges is coming to the terms with the fact that it really is happening and it's getting to a point of irreversibility. So a lot of strategising over the last couple of decades have been as if we can stop it happening or reverse it and keep the climate that we've got and which we've built upon. The last agreement at the COP conference was two degrees. We're not on track for that. And I read something very recently, a study that had come out that showed that even if we did get to somehow stop the temperature rise at two degrees, that will have already set off a series of feedback loops, which means that the temperature will still keep rising. So the idea is that, you know, even if somehow we manage to 
curb emissions and stop it at two degrees, the process will have already gone too far. What this means is that the climate is going to change and disrupt human life and civilization on a scale that I think the majority of people have not yet begun to think about or comprehend. So then the challenge now, I think, comes in thinking about how are we going to respond to that? It is happening. How are we going to build a new world? How are we going to do this, coming back to what I said earlier, in a in a humane way. So, you know, the effects and risks of climate change are very unevenly distributed. There are millions of people who are living in areas of the world that are the hardest hit by drought, by extreme weather events, by water shortage. And for one reason or other, those often happen to be the countries that have the least money to deal with it. So what responsibility do we have in the West where, you know, we have the money and the resources to, to an extent, protect our civilizations against the effect of climate change, but not everywhere in the world does. So how, as these changes continue to come in and increase, how do we respond to that in a way that is morally okay, that looks after our fellow human beings and indeed non-humans, other animals, plants. You know, we're not here alone and we couldn't be. That is the point. Human beings rely on all the other forms of life and non-life around us. So I think even beyond morality and ethics, just on a very practical level, it's a necessity that we approach this problem in a more fair way. In her research, Gemma has compared the threat of climate change to nuclear warfare. Nuclear weapons were the first man-made or anthropogenic invention that was capable of wiping us out through nuclear warfare or through nuclear fallout. They were, in a way, the first things that posed a man-made existential risk. Nuclear warfare and the risk of nuclear warfare does very much still influence the way we think about other threats. There's the famous doomsday clock, of course, which is updated every now and again to show the minutes to midnight that people believe mankind is, is threatened by. And it was originally only for nuclear warfare that's how it emerged, but now it's been updated to reflect the risks of climate change. In a way, nuclear warfare is quite easy to picture. We see a clear enemy, weapons, explosions... With nuclear annihilation, to go back to this idea of storytelling and the way we respond to threats, nuclear warfare is much easier to think about. There's a very clear enemy, there's localizable threat in which someone somewhere would push a button and that would lead to this annihilation. But how similar is the risk of climate change to nuclear warfare? There is no explosions, there is no weapons... It's hard to picture what the risk of climate change would look like. In terms of the scale and level of existential risk, I think the threat of nuclear annihilation is the only thing in history that compares to climate change in terms of scale, in terms of being able to wipe out most, if not all, of humanity and a lot of the other life on Earth. But actually, I think that the similarities end there. With climate change, it's dispersed in space and time. It, there is no one villain. There's also no one way to stop it. And again, it's this idea of speed and scale. 
The idea of a nuclear bomb is very fast. It has a very kind of specific moment in time. And obviously the effects would then kind of spread and be more dispersed. But climate change, you know, when did it start? It's happening now. How long will it go on for? It's just much more difficult to think about in that way and therefore much more difficult to deal with. Yet one of the biggest differences, unlike nuclear warfare, is that climate change is happening right now. The very big difference is that nuclear annihilation kind of remains a speculative thing. It's a possibility. I think nine nations currently still maintain nuclear weapons. So it's there. The threat is there, but it has not happened. Whereas climate change is happening. It's still happening. It's, it's happening all the time. It's beyond a threat. It's there. Another difference with climate change is that there's no clear enemy, no clear sense of who should take responsibility. With climate change, human agency starts to disperse or evaporate or mutate into something that we are no longer in control of. So with the nuclear button, there's a choice there of I'm going to push this button and blow up my enemies. Whereas with climate change, you know, it's created by humans, but it's not this kind of conscious choice. And the, the effects of it certainly are not anything that anyone consciously intended. So it starts to, to trouble our sense of agency. Gemma recently started as an environmental fellow at the Harvard University Center for the Environment. Her research there is going to be looking at extinction. This planet has seen five mass extinctions. In each, roughly 90% of species have been wiped out. One fascinating aspect of her research, and one that turns this podcast on its head, is the question of human extinction. In this series, we've been considering how we can better understand and think about existential risk and mitigating those risks. But looking at the notion of human extinction forces us to think about whether we should consider existential risks, like climate change, from the perspective of mankind alone. Perhaps we should also consider them from the perspective of other species and even the planet. If human beings are wiped out, I mean, this obviously is going to sound very controversial, but would it be such a tragedy? We know from looking at the past that the planet will be okay, that life will be okay, it will regenerate. Is this kind of drive to save ourselves and our civilizations, is that anthropocentric in itself? I'm not saying that that's my position, but this is kind of the ideas that the project will be thinking about. How hard do you think it is to work sort of between disciplines? How hard is it for someone who studies literature or English to work with scientists who work on climate change? Climate change is this problem that comes from every direction at once. And so to think about it from just one angle is never going to be enough. I'm not discounting the work that people within individual disciplines do. That's also very, very important. But for me, it felt really right to be able to kind of bring all these different things together. And yeah, and I love talking to people from different disciplines and working in that way. I think it's really, really important and that it needs to happen more. Hopefully I can be a part of that. If you want to know more about this topic, Gemma's book, Radical Animism, Reading for the End of the World, will be published as a part of the Bloomsbury Environmental Cultures series in mid-2019. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about this series, visit humanitiesxrisk.com. 
This podcast would not have been possible without the help and support of the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities and the Balliol Interdisciplinary Institute.